Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, and welcome to Sheep Thrills. Sorry for that little bit of feedback that we're still getting. Let's see, is that better? Yes, it is. Okay. Anyway, good start to the show. Good start to the to the morning. Hello, my name is Emily Lamb. Welcome to episode three of Sheep Thrills for the spring semester 2022. We've got a lot to talk about, as always. Um, it was an eventful week, as, as, as always, with everything. Um, and so we've got a lot to talk about today. Big stories we're going to cover. Um, we're going to talk about the Canadian trucker protest first. We're going to do a little bit of a state of the legislative branch, talk about a couple of little smaller stories um, like I did last week with the executive branch. And then we're going to do a little bit of a fun wonk story that's basically just for me. And we're going to talk about the current state of redistricting, kind of where the balance is falling right now with most state maps being out. Um, and then we're just going to talk about kind of what that means for uh, the midterms, what's, you know, what, what the congressional makeup is going to look like in 2022. First things first, though, I want to do a couple of rapid fire updates that are important that I talk about because this is, you know, kind of a news show. Although, as I've said before, it's not, it's, you know, this is my opinion. Everything that I talk about is coded, just simply covered in my own opinion and my own bias. So while I am talking about the news... There's bias there. <laughs> anyway, so I want to talk about a couple um, rapid fire updates that I think are important that we cover really quickly. And then, of course, at the end of the show, we are going to do a fun story, which this story, again, like last week, you can either laugh or you'll cry. So I'm choosing to laugh. So we'll get there towards the end of the show. But first things first, a couple of quick rapid fire updates that I don't want to spend too much time on. First of all, um, it was just announced last night, the, the U.S. government announced that Russia is most likely going to invade Ukraine within the next couple of days. Uh, so they kind of have gotten some intelligence that the Putin has ordered troops to start moving in. Um, and so that's that's kind of happening pretty quickly now. Um, Biden has been telling Americans to leave Ukraine um, and he's basically warning them that if they are in the Ukraine, there's no guarantee that he is going to send in American troops to rescue them, um, whether or not they're kind of uh, their permanent residents of the Ukraine or whether they are just like visiting. Um, because he basically, I, he basically said in, inter in an interview, you know, if they send in American troops to rescue American citizens and then the Russians and Americans start exchanging gunfire, then that is going to be the start of a world war. So he's trying to avoid the world war situation as much as possible. Um, although I don't know, kind of, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think that this is going to end up being a world war. Like I said, a couple weeks ago, I just feel like we have the same conversation over and over again. But then again, the fact that Putin has reportedly like started those troop movements is pretty significant. So we'll see kind of how that, how that all works out. I'm kind of, maybe, maybe I'm sticking my head in the sand. Maybe I'm just being silly, but I really don't think that um, this is going to escalate um, any any potentially any larger than that border. But I suppose we'll have to see um, how that all goes. And we will definitely have an update next week. Maybe, you know, maybe there will be nuclear war by next week. And this show will be a little bit redundant. Anyway, um, second important story. Um, many Democratic governors have started overturning their mask mandates, um, specifically notable to me as a... New Jersey girl, uh, Governor Murphy in New Jersey, is getting rid of the mandates um, for masks in schools. There hasn't been an indoor mask mandate in Jersey for a while, um, except for in schools. And so now he's officially kind of turned that over, made um, masking optional for students in schools. Um, so that's interesting. It's kind of, it's, it's a shift in policy that's significant. And, um, you know, it's notable that there's kind of this new shift in policy, at least on a more local level, from, you know, trying to solve the pandemic to just, like, living with the pandemic. Although, again, as I've said in the past, the idea of, like, oh, we have to learn how to live with the pandemic is so silly, because what have we been doing for the past two years? Because let me tell you, we have not been trying to fix the pandemic for the last two years. We've been, we've been living with it. We've been living with it. But anyway, that's an interesting change in policy that's not necessarily reflected on a federal level. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration kind of shifts their policies around to kind of match with um, with with those those Democratic governors or whether they kind of chug on doing their own thing, which is kind of what they've indicated that they're doing. But it's a uh, remains somewhat unclear kind of what the 
the future of that policy is. So, anyway, uh, that's quick rapid fire story number two. Quick rapid fire story number three. A little bit of an update from last week. The Olympics are still going on. Same controversies as last week. It's still a little bit um, tense over there. Um, but the two little stories around the Olympics that I think are important to talk about. One, the controversy made it all the way across the ocean and continents and <laughs> all the, the way from China to the George Washington University. Um, and if you have not been reading uh, the, the GW Hatchet, which, you know, of course you should be doing, um, there has been some controversy around um, some posters that got hung up that are kind of criticizing the Chinese government for, you know, rampant human rights abuses. Um, so if you have not been reading into that, definitely look up that article because it's very interesting. Um, you know, hashtag only at GW. Uh, and then the other kind of little story that I want to talk about here is that a 15-year-old Russian figure skater who won, I think, the gold medal for the team event and I think for one of the individual events got caught, um, like failed a drug test. Which is so upsetting because A, she's 15 years old. Like, there's no way that she was like, no, I need to take steroids. Like, someone gave them to her and said, take these steroids now. Which is just really upsetting. Um, and then it's also just a question of, like, should she be held liable? Should her coaches be held liable? Just an interesting, um, you know, sport policy question. As always, the Olympics, they, they, are, they are not just about sports. They're kind of chock full of everything else. But tangentially onto that, as we know, or whatever, if maybe if you don't know, the the Russian, the country of Russia is not allowed to compete in the games because of various drug issues. And so they, their athletes compete under the Russian Olympic Committee or Commission or something like that, um, the ROC. And, you know, they're, they're like, oh, this will be better because then like the Russians themselves can't be represented and blah, blah, blah. But it's just the same Russian athletes and the same Russian coaches and all these things. And it's like, Stop disgracing the sacred name of the Olympic Games by doing drugs, please. I beg. But anyway, I just want to talk about that because I think it's important that we cover, considering that there are some updates from last week. Um, but I didn't want to spend too much time on it because I didn't want to. And this is my show, and I have ultimate control. And isn't that lovely? Uh, potentially just me. But anyway. So the first big story I want to talk about today is the Freedom Convoy in Canada. Ooh. Um, so this has been going on for a while, but it's only really picked up steam recently um, just because, you know, it started to have uh, some economic ramifications, uh, just kind of become like a larger story, a larger issue. Um, so Canada has much stricter COVID policies than the U.S. Um, they have, you know, longer quarantine periods. There's mask mandates. There's vaccine mandates. Uh, so it's just generally a lot stricter than the U.S., um, which is why this story is happening, I think, in Canada and not in the United States right now. Um, but basically last month, thousands of truckers descended on Ottawa um, and they, ex they were just kind of causing issues in Ottawa, but then they recently expanded their demonstrations and they blockaded the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Ontario to Detroit, which handles 25% of like the land trade that's happening between um, Canada and the United States. <clears throat> so now it's a Canadian issue as well as an American issue. Um, and they've tried redirecting traffic to the other border crossings. There's like two other regional border crossings in the area. Um, but if the traffic is extremely slow moving and it can only go in one direction and then um, the, the, the protesters have started blockading the other um, the other border crossings as well. Basically, like all the shutting down kind of movement um, across land between between the two countries. So um, there have been multiple, of course, because Detroit has a lot of. Uh, car plants and everything like that. So there's been a lot of controversy there. There's been multiple plants that have been negatively impacted by the blockade, um, mostly on the Canadian side. So they someone reported that um, Stellantis, which I don't, you know, I'm not a car person, I have no idea. But they had to briefly shut down a minivan plant. Um, Ford is paring back production. Um, Toyota had to close three p plants for a couple weeks, and then they said, you know, TBD, we'll figure it out then. Um, plus, a bunch of manufacturing plants in the U.S. have been affected because they haven't been able to get the parts that they need to actually, like, produce the cars that they need to build. Um, and so there's been Toyota plants in Kentucky um, and Ford plants in Kentucky and then GM plants in Michigan. And I think, 
that was the other one, a Ford plant in Ohio as well. Um, so it's, again, not only affecting Canadian producers, but it's also affecting um, American producers. And this one, um, one article I read said that, the, that, the, that those two bridges that are currently blocked off between Michigan and Ontario carry about $100 billion in automotive goods annually. Um, so the, um, obviously, like all the general um, kind of supply chain issues because of COVID, plus this just completely are exacerbating this problem. And they already were kind of struggling um, to kind of keep production where they needed it to be. And then, of course, with this situation, they kind of just, it did not, it's not working out for the, the, the automotive industry right now. Um, and so there's a huge shortage in vehicles right now. And there's a, about a million cars in dealer lots when 3 million were expected at this time of year, plus the average um, price of a car is way, way up, which of course makes sense because if we look at our supply and demand chart and we have, you know, increased demand and decreased supply, it means that the price increases. Anyway, shout out, shout out to introductory microeconomics. Um, and so the other kind of interesting thing about um, kind of the way that this industry works is that, um, you know, you would think, oh, well, if, if the protests just started happening a month ago, why are they having such shortages like already? Shouldn't it be kind of a couple months down the line that they start kind of feeling the effects of this protest, of the supply chain issues, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the way that the automotive industry works is that they basically set it up that like they get the parts, they turn it around, they get them out like immediately. Like it's very much, um, they call it like just in time production that they 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 kind of don't have a delay on using the parts they get the parts they use them they turn them out um and so of course if they're not getting the parts then they're not turning them out and then the production is just completely stalled because they have nothing else um kind of to use to to produce those those cars which is pretty interesting the 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 main takeaway of this for me um is that the truckers are using their power for evil and I'm really upset about that. As a person, I know I talked about this a lot last semester. I'm a big fan of um, labor organizing. I'm a big fan of a labor protest, but not for evil, because again, they're, what they're protesting, if I didn't make this like kind of explicitly clear, um, is that they are protesting vaccine and mask mandates and they want Justin Trudeau to retire and you know probably get executed and all these different things. So I don't, I was, that was hyperbole at the end. I don't know what their actual demands are around around Justin Trudeau's life or death, um, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised necessarily. But anyway, they're using their power for evil. Um, you know, there's a broader conversation about you know how significant labor organization can be, and you can think about like what would all of these truckers have accomplished if they were organizing for good, if they were organizing for higher wages or safer living conditions. You know, they they. It shows, A, it shows how much influence laborers, laborers have over the entire economy um, because they can shut down an entire industry by like hanging out on a bridge for a couple weeks. Um, and also, you know, the thinking about all of those truckers that are not, you know, transporting goods across the border, think about how much they are, in, you know, influencing the supply chain. They have so much kind of influence and power over the economy that if they were using that, that, energy for good, there'd be so much good progress that's happening. But instead, they're mad that they have to protect each other by getting vaccinated. And that's unfortunate. Um, you know, we talked about this last semester with with Striketober that happened when there was just like 15 kind of big protests um, and labor strikes all happening at the same time. Um, there's definitely, I think, a reckoning coming, still coming, um, about how laborers and employees inter or employers interact. I just you know, there's there's a new there's a new industrial revolution headed down the not industrial revolution because the industrial revolution is industrialization. But there's there's a new there's a new wave of I think labor protests happening, and I think that's going to lead to a new wave of labor reforms. If the the you know laborers in the United States and all around kind of use the same tools that. Um, these truckers use, but for good instead of evil. I think it just goes to show, like, if the laborers wanted to do it, they could, and I think that they will kind of want to do it. And the, this other kind of funny, funny Twitter moment that I saw was a tweet is like, remember when, remember the, like, back in the day when, when road blockages were left coded instead of right coded? It was so funny. Because again, 
it's like the the these conservatives we assume are conservative, whatever, are um, kind of co-opting those like leftist liberal strategies for evil instead of for good. Um, <clears throat> but again, if they were if 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 liberals are able to kind of take back those policies, if labor unions are able to take back those practices and see how effective they were in this situation, then they can definitely kind of be utilized in, a, in an effective way in the United States or kind of ever anywhere else for for good things. Um, and just generally, I think it's so interesting that, and it's insane, that people care so little about each other that they're willing to um, literally, literally shut down an entire industry for a month because they don't want to get a shot. And it's, I read an article that described it as peak COVID absurdism. Like it's just the most absurd possible situation because people just do not want to protect themselves. And it's, you know, back to the economics, you know, and in all of my economics or kind of policy classes or anything, talk all about rationality. All we do is talk about rationality and blah, blah, blah. But like, it, it's it's hilarious it is it's hilarious how much all my classes emphasize rationality when the world is just not a rational place and we need to just reject the rationality principle because it's not real it's not true it does not help us kind of reflect the world at all but anyway peak covid absurdism um kind of going off that um not really just kind of a change in, in subject. Um, but the Canadian response to the situation is very interesting because um, people have started saying, you know, this is like the start of Canadian populism. Like, they're never going to go away. Like, this is just the end. Um, but officials are, they kind of, they, you know, they, they, since the protest has been going on for a long time and it's only kind of ramped up since they started kind of blocking some of the other bridges. Um, but officials are very much at the end of the line in terms of their patience and their kind of general ability to wait the protesters out. They're done. They're over it. They do not want them to be there anymore. So um, they de officially declared a state of emergency. And the I think the premier of Ottawa, which is kind of fun, um, said that Ottawa is, quote, under siege and the residents are victims of illegal occupation. So they basically said, we OK, that was fun for a while, but we've transcended peaceful protest. And now you're just on my nerves. So you guys need to go home right now. Um, They've started issuing fines, but they've kind of stopped short of ordering the police to clear the streets. Um, I don't know much about Canada's free speech laws, uh, frankly, but I certainly doubt that there's going to be kind of a friendly response to um, the police kind of trying to break up this protest. I also wouldn't doubt that a lot of these people are armed, so I'm sure that the government is kind of looking for ways to, to make sure that they clear out peacefully, because um, I would be, I mean... I would not, I would not be surprised if it was if it if it kind of turned into a potentially more violent situation. Um, although again, you know, it, everyone's like it's a peaceful protest, it's a peaceful protest, but you know, there's swastikas and Confederate flags all over the place. Which, by the way, let me remind you that we are not talking about the United States of America. We are talking about Canada. Why are there Confederate flags in Canada? What? Okay, Canada. Um. Like quite literally, it's worse. It's worse to see. A, is it? Well, let's let's see. Let me know what you think. Is it worse to see a Confederate flag in Canada, or is it worse to see a Confederate flag in rural Pennsylvania? Neither state seceded. Neither state. Canada isn't. Oh Lord, people are so interesting. People are so very interesting, aren't they? Anyway, um, but the. Blah, blah, blah. I just can't get over the Confederate flags in Canada. That just really, I reread my note that said that there were Confederate flags at this protest. And it just threw me for such a loop that I got distracted by all the rest of my notes. So anyway, we're back on subject now. Um, will the police break up this protest? Eventually, I think they'll, they'll have to, especially because now they're going to start receiving a lot of pressure from the United States. And I know that, um, oh, man. Now I can't remember the all the elected officials from Michigan, whom I can't remember their names, which is very interesting. But it is very early in the morning, and so my brain is it still isn't fully on. But regardless, elected officials from Michigan and of course elected officials from kind of the federal government are now um, kind of putting their own pressure on Canada to say, hey, you got to deal with this because we've got 
you know, a big old shortage of, of cars going on right now. And we can't, of course, especially with Democrats, we can't let there be any more bad economic things happening because, oh, that was probably another thing I should have, never mind, uh, should have talked about in my rapid fire updates, but inflation just got reported to be like 7.5%, which is the highest in 40 years, something like that. So the, the economy is not looking good and the Biden administration clearly does not want it to be any worse. Um, and so there's definitely a lot of pressure from the United States as well as from Canada, like the federal Canadian government to push these protesters out and kind of get them going. Um, they're trying to like freeze access to their funds, which they, you know, they're, they're getting donations from all over the place. Uh, they're just generally trying to like wait them out, but it's not really necessarily working out right now. But we'll see how that goes. Obviously, they're still there. They're still hanging out. Um, but I would say that, they're you know, at some point, they're, some, something's going to have to give, I would say. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that protest ends up um, and whether the people in Canada flying Confederate flags realize that they do not know history. Anyway, moving on to our second story of the day. Um, we're going to do a little state of the um, legislative branch. Last week I did a state of the executive branch, talked about a little a couple like smaller stories there, um, and that was kind of fun. And there's a lot to talk about the legislative branch this week, so I'll do that. Maybe next week I'll do a little state of the judicial branch. I think I will. We'll just kind of do one at a time. That's kind of fun. Okay. Um, anyway, the two big stories that I want to talk about in terms of Congress this week are the new push on um, stock trading legislation and then the new push on staffer unionization efforts um, kind of happening in the House of Representatives right now, which is very cool and interesting to me. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about is stock trading. Uh, it's a pretty controversial issue within Congress, not so much among the American people, I don't think. I haven't seen too much polling around it, but I'd kind of be surprised if it was a super contentious issue. Um, but it is a pretty controversial issue within and among members of Congress. It's kind of interesting. It's not so much a partisan issue. Like I think there's a lot of support um, from both sides of the aisle. Um, and then there's a lot of people who are very against it on both sides of the aisle. So that that's a kind of a very interesting um, dichotomy with this issue is that it's not as, as cut, it's not as cut and dry as um, some of the other issues. So. The reason this kind of started um, gaining some traction, it's kind of always been like bopping around Congress, um, but it usually has not had as much like public support. Now it kind of does have a little bit more like public and institutional support. Um, it is now in consideration because of legislation introduced in the Senate um, by Georgia Senator Ossoff and I believe Arizona Senator Mark Kelly. Um, you know, probably it was probably in response to one of the, the kind of the main controversies that happened during um, Ossoff's election, which was that um, Purdue and Loeffler, who were the former senators from Georgia who were replaced by Ossoff and Warnock, um, kind of were, were accused of inside trading around um, COVID-19 issues. They received a kind of confidential briefing on how bad the pandemic was going to be. And then they turned around and they kind of bought and traded a bunch of stocks and they made a ton of money. Um, although Purdue and Loeffler were not the only ones accused of any kind of inside trading, I believe that Richard Byrd, North Carolina, also was kind of under suspicion. But basically, this was kind of like a main um, sticking point for the Ossoff campaign was like, look at this bad thing that this elected official did in Kelly Loeffler, I'm going to go to Congress, I'm going to A, not do those things, and B, make it harder for any elected official to do in the future. So now he's making good on those campaign promises. Um, so again, the, his, the legislation just basically, I don't know all the specifics because there's a lot of different versions of this bill that are kind of floating around right now, but basically the, the big takeaway is that it bans, um, makes it a lot harder for um, elected officials to do inside trading. It um, basically stops them from being able to, to, to trade and, and buy stocks during their time in Congress. Um, so initially, Nancy Pelosi has stated that, I mean, like, mo like pretty recently, like within the last six months, stated that she was not in support of this kind of legislation, which was kind of, it was significant because obviously you kind of need her backing in order to get anything to happen on the floor. Um, but it was also significant because she kind of notoriously has made a lot of money from the stock market. 
Um, and, you know, she's a very, very wealthy woman at this point in her life. And so there was a question of like, oh, well, of course, she's not going to kind of back this issue because look at how much money she's making from um, from the stock market. She's not going to spread this kind of legislation. But this week, uh, just, you know, again, despite having previously stated that she does not support the efforts, kind of jumped in in support and has said that she's going to she'll she'll hear legislation um, on the floor, which is a kind of a tangentially, but an interesting thing to consider is like, did she cave to the left? Um, or is it possible that she just like learned new information and refined her position and like just realized that maybe she was wrong? Is it possible for like elected officials to change their minds publicly? Like even someone who's been in office for as long as Nancy Pelosi? I think yes. I think it's okay. Uh, like, I don't think she compromised her values. I don't think she caved. I think maybe she just like you know, you're allowed to change your mind. You're allowed to learn and grow, even if you're like a public elected official. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's a controversial opinion. But I, I, I think it's kind of, I I feel like it's a lot more principled, actually, than Nancy Pelosi said, you know, never mind. I think I was wrong in this situation. And we actually should be supporting this legislation. So anyway, whatever. Let me know what you think. Um, but yeah, again, they, basically, the main question is, should elected officials be able to trade individual stocks while creating policy that is going to influence directly, directly influence the price of those stocks. In my opinion, and I guess in the opinion of a lot of the United States Congress, probably not. Um, To be perfectly honest, I don't understand how this hasn't been an issue that's been at the forefront um, for longer, because I don't understand how um, any trading isn't inside trading when you're a member of Congress. Like, you have access to so much information. You have access to all of these confidential hearings, all this information that you just don't have as an ordinary person. And, of course, like, the stock market isn't notorious for being, like, a fair institution, like, an institution that's super, like, warm and cuddly, um, that, like, you know, wants everybody to succeed. However, there is supposed to be kind of a... I feel at least there's supposed to be a level of, of, you know, everyone has the same information, everyone has the same ability to make money, to invest, whatever. But the, this this kind of just blows it out of the water because nobody has that same kind of information um, than, in, than a, you know, a federal elected official. So I don't understand, again, how this hasn't been at the forefront for longer or that there's kind of any controversy at all around kind of... this policy like it's kind of seems like a pretty common sense piece of legislation to pass through um and something that's going to get like a lot of broad support from the people as well but anyway the two main controversies around the legislation right now are a how straight up how is it going to get done uh is there going to you know elect officials going to have to put their stocks in a blind trust are they not allowed to have a stock portfolio at all you know how how far is the legislation going to reach i know nancy pelosi mentioned that she wanted the legislation to reach out to the judicial branch as well. Um, is it going to reach out to, you know, the the executive branch? Is it going to include, uh, you know, appointed positions, um, just elected, elected's family, senior staff? Like, kind of how far reaching is this legislation going to go? Um, and then B, the the second question is, can supporters recruit enough people? from across the aisle to actually get this legislation done. Um, there have been a couple elected officials who have very publicly stated that they do not support the legislation. Although then again, there is support kind of on from both sides of the aisle that like even if they don't get it done now um, and the, you know, I'm going back and I'm knocking on wood as I do in every episode. Um, if the Republicans take control of the um, House in 2022, there's a good chance that this issue will come up again and again. It'll just be like a bipartisan bill um, that just gets like kind of some some general support from across the aisle. Although the the kind of the, the question is kind of like a moral question um, in terms of just like the main criticisms of the legislation. Just like uh, the, this one elected official who I don't I don't want to say the wrong name, so I'm just not going to say the name. Um, but a woman who was a freshman a couple years ago. Anyway, I don't want to say it out loud because I don't want to get it wrong. Um, then again, I've never been wrong a day in my life, as we all know, so who cares? But her her main criticism was that she kind of thought that it was like, uh, like a, 
rude kind of to say that um, elected officials aren't morally good people who will avoid inside trading because obviously it's like a, a morally bad thing to do. Um, which is like a bold statement to assume that um, elected officials are good people necessarily. So, you know, whatever. I guess all the more power to her. Um, but she, you know, basically said like, we're not, just because we're elected officials doesn't, do, elected officials doesn't mean we're more likely to engage in inside trading um, than you know, somebody else who has similar information, whatever, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I don't think elected officials are necessarily good people. I think that a lot of them are very much after the bottom line. Um, but I kind of do understand the criticism of, I don't understand the moral criticism, but I understand the criticism of how is it actually going to work? Is there an effective way to actually get this legislation done? I understand that criticism. And if they can't come up with a good um, version of it, then I, I understand if it's kind of something that kind of stays in the back burner for a while. Um, although I do, I do think that it's an important piece of legislation. Um, there's a lot of different pieces of the legend versions of the legislation kind of bouncing around right now that kind of answer all those different questions that I talked about in different ways. Um, so it'll be interesting to see which one kind of rises to the top, which one kind of becomes seen as the most effective, the most ethical, blah, blah, blah issue. Um, and I think that the, the broader question that this legislation brings up is kind of the question uh, of like members of Congress as public servants versus members of Congress as business leaders, right? Like, is the United States government a business? Like, no, it's not. The, whole, the, the, the point of government is not to make money. The point of government is to help people. And I really do believe that. Um, and I think that this, this kind of, this question makes you think about why public servants are in Congress or why, you know, why members of Congress are in Congress at all. Are they there to be public servants and to help people and to pass policies that are actually going to help the common person? Or are they there to bolster their stock portfolio and make some money and then get out? Um, and I think that that's significant. And I, I do think that potentially this legislation could dissuade certain people who maybe aren't going to Congress for the right reasons to not run. And then maybe we'll actually get some better people in office um, who, are, who, are, who are more interested in helping people. I don't know, kind of a larger ethical question around kind of the state of uh, public service. But anyway, that's kind of an interesting, interesting uh, kind of legislative issue happening right now. Second thing I want to talk about uh, within the, specifically the House of Representatives, is um, staffer unionization efforts. And as a person who really likes labor policy and really likes political uh, organization unionization efforts, this is a pretty important story to me. Um, so it's very interesting because uh, there's been a, a push recently, at least like the last year, um, obviously like 2021, not 2022, but um, around kind of political organizations, campaign organizations, NGOs, nonprofits, um, kind of all starting to unionize or kind of push to have, have unions be created. Um, and so the staffers in the in the House of Representatives are no different. Um, and they're they have decided that they want to create a union for both senior and junior staff members. Um, so this this push has been endorsed. It has only started, I think, in the last week, um, although I don't this is not the first time it's been talked about, I don't think. But I think this is maybe the first time that it's gone um, gone this far in that like there's going to be legislation or resolutions introduced. Um, on the floor. So the, the effort was endorsed by Nancy Pelosi as well as several other Democratic officials. Um, I don't have the, actually I probably could pull up the list in front of me, um, but I believe that it's about like 50 different um, elected officials right now um, who have kind of officially endorsed the effort. There's a spreadsheet online um, that's been kind of bopping around. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yes, I can pull it up. Look at me. Oh, this is the Senate. Interesting. Yeah, so 23 or 22 senators have supported it. Um, and uh, 89 uh, members of the House of Representatives 
have also announced that they're in support, they're kind of publicly supporting um, those unionization efforts. Just pretty interesting, because um, it, you know, it's not it's not a small number of people. Although of course they do need to have obviously a majority of the of the house to get that support. And then these these are all just the people that have like tweeted out publicly saying that they're in support, but they have not. Uh, there's I'm sure there's plenty of people who are just you know haven't public publicly announced it, but will vote for it. Um, obviously there's not a lot of support from the Republican side of the aisle kind of neither here nor there um, because it's not really a question of what's happening in the Senate because they know that it's not going to happen in the Senate. Um, but they do know that the, um, you know, the Democrats will be able to get it done. They'll probably get a, get a majority there. Um, the biggest issue, as with the stocks issue beyond buy-in from, from the people, is you know, kind of simply how it's going to work. Um, all offices have different hiring practices, different HR practices. It's kind of like 535 different individual offices, so it's hard to kind of d demand and subsequently implement any kind of collective action just because there's so many different kind of policies on uh, on board. And I think that's that's been the, not the criticism, but the critique of a lot of different, even supporters, is great, we're in, super into it, love unionization efforts, but how are we actually going to get this done in a way that, that's effective, that's actually um, helping everyone? The other question you know, there's there's a the, the the thing with that House of Representatives is that there's a huge level of turnover. I think I read that the like average tenure for a staffer is three years. Um, so you know, people are coming in and out a lot. Um, and then there's no question about like what the legal framework is actually going to look like. And then how is the union going to work with both senior and junior staff members who obviously have different pay levels um, and different, you know, different expectations and different, you know, different policy issues and all that kind of stuff. Um, plus my own question, of course, because I can't ever not bring it up, um, is, you know, where do interns and fellows fall into the conversation? Are they, you know, is there going to be a push to demand their compensation? Is there going to be a push to um, ensure that they're also being kind of represented in this kind of, in this kind of labor push? Um, and it's a similar uh, issue with campaign unions um, of just like, what do you do when there's so much turnover? What do you do when it's kind of like a temporary organization? Um, how do you demand that collective action in a place that's just a little bit more fluid than, um, you know, like a factory? Um, so it's, it's very, it's just a very interesting set of set of conversations that are definitely being had right now. Um, Andy Levin, King, uh, Representative Andy Levin, um, sponsored a resolution to kind of start the process, kickstart it. Um, but it doesn't give any kind of structure for the process. It just basically says, you're allowed to start unionizing, go forth. Because um, he says he wants it to be worker-led, which makes perfect sense. Um, but then they might be starting to vote on this resolution by next week, which is pretty cool that that turnaround happened so fast. Um, and it's unclear, kind of based on that resolution, based on the conversations that have been had, whether or not unionized house aides will join an existing guild or whether they'll have to create a new one. Um, but the current push is backed by the American Federation of Government Employees. Um, and so it's going to be a long process. They're talking about short-term solutions. They're trying to figure out kind of what we can, they can do now to make um, conditions better. They've talked about um, like a short-term pay floor where everyone has to be paid a living wage in DC, um, which obviously is not the same as a living wage elsewhere because rent prices in DC are out of control. Um, and then they've also started talking about um, paying for overtime work where, you know, some offices do pay for overtime, some don't. Um, and so there's just kind of some conversation around um, kind of implementing some, some general overarching policies around overtime work. Um, and so the, you know, political organization, unionization is kind of a pet issue for me, as I mentioned. So I'm very excited um, to see where this all goes. Um, and, you know, it's, it's important. It's important that there are efforts to improve Hill culture happening right now. Um, and a kind of just improving political culture overall, making it more accessible to people. Um, because working as a, a, a Hill aide is an extremely difficult job and it's very low paid and it's, you know, underpaid and underappreciated and um it's not only like a high pressure job but it now because of january 6th and because of everything else it's now potentially a a, a dangerous job like either a mentally or a physically 
dangerous job. Um, so kind of providing some like larger overarching worker protections and all those things and actually increase worker retention, increase the diversity of staffers, um, just kind of making it more accessible for people who don't have like institutional money um, to get a job on the Hill, which I think is a good thing. I'm excited to see um, where that process goes. And I really hope that they are able to kind of start those start those processes. It'll be interesting to see if they can do it without buy-in from the Republican side um, at all in terms of like actually getting the union off the board. Maybe they'll just create like a you know, Democratic staffer union, um, but I don't think it'll have the same effect if it doesn't have um, buy-in from everyone. But we will see um, where that process goes. Yay. Last but not least, last story of the day, we are going to talk about the current state of redistricting. It's time for a wonk story. Um, as we all know, Redistricting is in full swing in the U.S., so now is as good of a time as ever, um, at least until like the final set of maps come out, um, to talk about where we are in the process, what it looks like, how it goes. Um, so speaking from the Democratic lens, as I do, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, um, there have been some good wins, some tough losses, but like generally in comparison to how we felt that like six months ago, we're in a very good place, much better place than, than Democrats, I think, thought they were going to be. Or at least Democratic lay people thought they were going to be. I think um, Democratic officials and Democratic redistricting officials are like, yes, this is exactly where we were going to be. This is exactly where we want to be, blah, blah, blah. Um, but considering the high level of control that Republicans have on state legislatures, there was a pretty high level of, of conviction that Republicans were just going to have their way with the map like they did in 2010. Um, when they just completely reformed the map and it was a kind of a disaster for the Democratic Party. Not so true anymore, actually, that, you know, the Republicans still do have plenty of control over um, redistricting, but they weren't able to, to get away with as much as usual because um, Democrats started fighting back. Um, as we know, Republicans are notorious for their gerrymandering. Um, and usually in the past, Democrats kind of haven't, in the places where they have control, they haven't gerrymandered back. Um, but this time they did. It was kind of, you know, they took their gloves off and they were like, all right, we're fighting, we're doing this. Um, so they, they did some aggressive gerrymanders of their own, won a few key wins, and, and plus, you know, a few key wins in the courts. They kind of um, were able to get a little bit of a benefit there. 11 states still haven't completed their maps, um, but they're, you know, even even with those 11 states, the Democrats are going to avoid, again, the complete disaster of 2010, where they basically just got completely effed. They did not, it, it did not go well for them in 2010. Um, and so the, you know, obviously the Republican vantage diluted a lot of Democratic vote in Texas and Georgia, a couple other places. But Democrats, for example, were able to do pretty aggressive maps in New York and New Jersey. The New York map, it is a pretty aggressive gerrymander. I think it's like 23 Democratic seats and three Republican seats. Is something like that? 26-3? I don't know. Something like that. But anyway, the point is there. there's only three Republican seats in the map of New York, which is pretty great. And then um, the New Jersey map is also a pretty aggressive gerrymander. And they really, because um, there was three or four incumbent Democratic representatives um, in New Jersey that were like a little bit vulnerable. Um, people were a little bit concerned about their actual, you know, if, if they were going to get, get reelected again. Um, just simply based off of like political, like just the, the like the, the, the political balance in the district. Um, but the way that the map worked out, like they completely shored up, um, completely shored up certain districts. So my representative from New Jersey, Mikey Sherrill, um, previous, like the, the last map, I think the map was like, it's like Biden plus four or something, but the new map is Biden plus 12. So it's just like crazy the way that they, they shored up her district that now it's not as um, as concerning. They did, however, throw Tom Malinowski right under the bus. They shored up everybody else's districts at his expense. RIP to Tom Malinowski. I will be back in New Jersey doing some canvassing for him because we got to now we got to put all of our resources into that district because it's the one kind of vulnerable Democratic district in New Jersey. That was a tangent, but I want to talk about the New Jersey map anyway. Um, and so they reported that um, New York's map kind of flipped the Cook political reports overall redistricting scorecard 
um, in Democrats' favor, kind of for the first time. So it really did like push the needle pretty aggressively far because they're, you know, they were able to get away with doing a little bit of an aggressive gerrymander of their own, kind of fighting back against what the Republicans were doing in Texas and in Georgia, where, you know, even though Biden and two Democratic senators won in Georgia, the way that the balance looks, it looks like there's like one or two Democratic seats um, and four or five um, Republican seats, which obviously doesn't make any sense considering the actual balance of the state. Um, the legal battles were also pretty interesting. Um, the Republicans in Ohio can't create a map for the lives of them that will not get um, struck down by the courts. They've done it now two times where they've presented a map and they're like, that's just not constitutional. Um, so hopefully they'll come up with a map eventually that is not as aggressive of a gerrymander. Um, and, you know, it's not just because political gerrymandering is one thing, but it's when you get to the kind of racial gerrymandering and, and other situations where if you're getting in trouble with the Voting Rights Act, it's like, just make a better map, make a better map. Um, but then again, that's just the Ohio Republican Party for you. So whatever. Um, and then the other interesting thing is Alabama. Um, they were able to get away with a pretty controversial map, again, that kind of violates, at least in some people's eyes, the um, the Voting Rights Act. The Supreme Court has said that they're not going to look into it, um, and so the 2022 midterms will probably happen with a contested map, and then the Supreme Court will, will take a look at that map afterwards, um, after those elections, which is pretty interesting. Um, and then, of course, as the Democrats fought back, the Republicans fought back even harder because they have so many tools in their tool chest. Um, and then the Tennessee map that we talked a little bit last talked about a little bit last semester is like absolutely a travesty. It's insanity that map. Um, I don't know how they're getting away with it, but they are. And then the Florida map, of course, is pretty important. Um, they're gonna obviously suggest a pretty aggressive gerrymander, and it'll be interesting to see whether the courts hold it up. Um, and of course, this brings us to the main question uh, of this whole process, which is, should the Democrats be fighting fire with fire? In my opinion, yes, probably. You know, like you can't just sit there and, and, and let the world happen to you. Um, you know, it's not necessarily the most ethical thing in the world to be engaging in gerrymandering. Um, but with when when the Republicans are changing the balance, again, like bringing it back to Georgia, when the Republicans are changing the balance so much, um, then it, it kind of seems like the, the Democrats almost have an obligation to fight back um, because they, they need to fix the balance in other states um, so that there is kind of a general balance that actually reflects the, the will of the people um, in the U.S. Really interesting, very funny quote from a Slate article that I read, which I'm just going to read the whole thing because I think it's so funny. So it's, quote, uh, due to a, um, I forget what the first part of the quote is, but it's basically like, you know, people are so surprised about how good the, the balance is within um, the redistricting right now, but it's, um, they're surprised due to, an, due to a psychological affliction among Democrats who view their partly as innately incapable of competing with Republicans in power politics and who've never seen a rabbit hole of despair they haven't gone down. And if that isn't the truth, I don't know what is. I read that quote, I started crying of laughter. Um, but it's the, you know, people are surprised about how good the redistricting looks for Democrats, but it's the implementation of a very good direct strategy, which has kind of been happening behind the scenes. Um, which is surprising to a lot of Democrats, just like regular Democrats, surprising, I think, to a lot of Republican lawmakers, um, because Democrats are actually competing as opposed to just like stewing and self-loathing, which is good because the Democrats are not good at doing that. So I'm happy for them. Um, and so regardless of how the final balance ends up with those last 11 states, the Democrats are going to be in a much better position than they were in 2010, um, especially considering how difficult midterms are going to be. They're kind of going to be putting their best foot forward in terms of just kind of holding on to whatever they can hold on to. And again, like specifically New Jersey, because that's just what I talk about. Um, you know, people thought that the Democrats, the people that, that we thought were going to be vulnerable just aren't going to be vulnerable anymore. We can take all those resources. We can put them into those vulnerable um, seats that got gerrymandered by Republicans. And so it just makes it a lot. Um, there's just a lot of better things that are going to happen because we have a better, more even map. Right. If the Republicans are going to fight, Democrats are going to fight. It's going to end up kind of being a more more balanced map overall. Um which is a good thing. It's a good thing to have a balanced map that reflects the will of the people. 
but anyway, so that's that's redistricting, of course. Like once the final map comes out, I'm sure I'll do a full kind of analysis of it. Um, you could also find a lot of people do better analysis than me online. You can find those if you'd like. Um, but yeah, we'll be definitely, obviously before, you know, we're, we're getting into primary season for the midterm. So as we get kind of closer, as more candidates start announcing, um, we will definitely start digging into that a lot more um, in, the, in, the, in the coming weeks, which I'm very excited for. <sighs> Last but not least, our fun story of the week. Um, so New York Times journalist Maggie Haberman was, and I think still is, um, the was the White House correspondent during the Trump administration for the New York Times. Um, kind of controversial. I think, you know, people just are very, at least the circles that I run in, people are very critical of the New York Times. Um, so whatever, I don't know. I don't know what the reality is. I don't think that, I, you know, most normal people even know who Maggie Haberman is. But regardless, um, she just announced uh, that she is publishing a book about the Trump administration. And in that book, she revealed that Donald Trump administration, and I think Donald Trump himself, got caught flushing documents down the toilet. Like regularly, maintenance people would just be like plunging the toilet and there'd just be like clumps of paper in there because Donald Trump had flushed documents down the toilet. And so the two parts of the story are, two parts of the story. One, why did, if Maggie Haberman knew this six months or knew this, you know, four years ago, why didn't she say anything about it? And is it her journalistic responsibility to expose those things as opposed to waiting to reveal it until she wanted to sell her book? And then B, what documents was he flushing down the toilet? What don't we know? What don't we know? And last week, I went on a whole tirade about how Donald Trump was terrible at covering things up and how his cover-ups were sad and pathetic and he could just get away with it. I am changing my tune. I'm changing my tune. I think that Donald Trump did an excellent cover-up because he did it all under our noses. He did it all under our noses and no one found out about anything until a full year after he was out of office. That's insane. I want to know what was on those documents. Oh my gosh. Maybe it was just Barron's tests, like, or like artwork that Barron did that, that Donald did not want to keep, and so he flushed it down the toilet. Or more likely, it was sensitive documents about him trying to overthrow the government. That's more, that's, that's more likely, frankly. But anyway, if you don't laugh, as I said at the top of the show, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So I'm choosing to laugh. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm choosing to ignore. I mean, I'm not choosing to ignore because I'm here talking about it and I also, like, do research on it. But um, it's definitely interesting to kind of, again, see the full extent of what the Trump presidency was able to cover up just by sheer journalists not doing their jobs, by the American people not really caring about all these conflicts of interest, all these um, just, like, different violations. But I mean, it's all coming out. It's all coming to the to the to the surface now, and I don't see how he continues to get away with it. But regardless, that's my last little story for you today. Uh, with that, that's all I got for you. Uh, it's it's we're we're coming up to the end of our hour here. Um, as always, if you have thoughts, feelings, opinions, um, follow the show on on Instagram and on Twitter. You can follow on Twitter at. Um, uh, what is it? Sheep Thrills GW. You can follow on Instagram at Sheep Thrills Radio. Um, let me know what you think. As long as you're polite, send me a DM. Um, show is always posted on Spotify. Uh, it'll be posted eventually. I've decided that I'm no longer going to commit myself to a schedule because I don't want to let myself down. Um, but anyway, that's all I've got for you. Have a lovely rest of your um, weekend, a lovely rest of your Saturday. And I will see you same time, same place, 8 a.m. next Saturday. Have a lovely week, and I will talk to you guys later.